My name is Paul Gilroy. I'm the director of the Sarah Parker Remond Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. And uh, I'm very privileged and delighted to be able to, uh, to have Gary Young, newly appointed professor of sociology at Manchester University and distinguished journalist, commentator on many things, but particularly, I guess, on the social and cultural lives of uh, black America and of black folks in, in Britain, over the, certainly over the last few years. So welcome, Gary, and thank you very, very much for making the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me, Paul. Looking forward to it. Well, I remember once, I think it was in something you wrote, but I don't remember where you wrote it, but it stuck in my mind. You were quoting Mark Twain or something. You say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, you know? Yeah. And I sort of thought we could begin with that idea of history repeating itself and not repeating itself, but rhyming. I was thinking, well, if it's rhyming, well, what kind of rhyme is it now? Is it a sonnet? Is it a limerick? You know, there once, <laughs> there once was a country called Britain whose people were utterly, you know, and we go. <laughs> so so how, do you, how do you see the rhyming process going at the moment, Gary? I've had people say quite a few times, you know, do you think this is like the 60s? And, and I say, no, it's not like the 60s. You know, it's not we're not in the same place, although there are similarities. And of course, it would be banal to say each moment is its own moment, although that's true. But that there are significant ways in terms of, there are slogans, but no movements, mm. as far as I can fathom. I mean, that's not to denigrate anybody or anything, but mm. Black Panthers were a movement. You know, they had meetings and discussions and there was a kind of internal coherence attempts at democracy kind of so on whereas black lives matter isn't that which isn't a criticism of it it's a critique of it in the 60s there was there was this conversation that you could say everybody was having in the diaspora about citizenship whether they were african americans or in africa or um well, because there were still many colonised people, even in Britain and Europe. Whereas here, there's been a kind of almost a boomerang effect where you've had this murder, which is itself only historical insofar as people made it historical. Mm. And it's gone global. Mm. I read, I can't confirm, but I read that Portugal's biggest anti-racist demonstration was about this now clearly it can't just be about this <laughs> and so there's been this boomerang and now it's come back in the form in britain in the form of historical reckoning colston basil faulty i mean they're all kind of wrapped up in it and there is this there is this thing which kind of wears me out where it's either feast or famine yeah you know i remember in america trying to get a mortgage and just before the financial crisis, they were just giving them out like candy. No scrutiny. After the financial crisis, you couldn't get a mortgage for love nor money. It didn't matter that we actually had more money at the time. You couldn't get one. And it was though that mortgage people had not realised that their job was to scrutinise who could get a mortgage or not. So they either said no to everybody or they said yes to everybody. And I feel that we're in one of these moments now. Having struggled to get any scrutiny or sufficient scrutiny of Britain's historical record, of people's responsibility, of police brutality and so on, we've gone from that to this kind of almost like teenagers discovering sex where everybody wants, everybody wants to do it very urgently and not particularly very well. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I was thinking about that because two things happened to me this week. This morning when I went out for my walk at six o'clock, which is what I've been doing, I suddenly realised that where I was walking in North London, there were stencils everywhere of fists and Black Lives Matter. It suddenly gone up overnight. And the other thing that happened was I was watching, um, you know, I, this time of the year, we tr- try and spend a lot of time out bird watching, which is one of the things I do for my own mental health in normal conditions, not just in states of exception, you know. And one of the places I go, which is an area of London where you can listen to nightingales, it's, I suppose, the nearest nightingales to the centre of London. So it's and it's easy to get to from where I live on public transport, you know, because I, I don't drive. So I was looking at a video that had been shot in Hoddesdon High Street of the local Black Lives Matter protesters who had assembled there. They'd gone there to stage their protest, their solidarity, and had come under kind of abuse from some of the locals who announced that they were defending the war memorial against the possibility that the Black Lives Matter protesters might assault it and were abusing them in the usual sort of standard uh, standard rhetoric for that kind of abuse. Now, I was, I'm just thinking, well... In a way, we're not very good at theorising this, but actually the kind of cultural antagonisms that are being revealed with great clarity in this period are not something that have been invented by those people in the government, on the right, the alt-right, who want a culture war. The culture war, you know, in as much as it was, it's not really a war, it's some sort of other protracted low-intensity conflict or something, some other euphemism for something that's not quite a war. (laughs) Those lines go back such a long way, and Mm. there are there, and any black person in this country who goes for a walk or something is somewhere unfamiliar is utterly familiar with the effects that that has. It's it's a bit different from the 50s and 60s, and, you know, I remember going for a walk with my mum and people would try and touch her for luck or ask about her tail and that kind of thing. Mm. That doesn't happen, but those... Those things have been able to reproduce quietly and periodically they come into view and sometimes they're satirized or interrogated, but that process doesn't really go anywhere. And it and it can't go anywhere because it's the possibility of working through it has been closed off. Yeah. So the question I suppose for me right now is does this mobilization I think you're really, really right. I not to say it's not a movement yet. I mean, I call it a mobilization to distinguish it from a movement mm. in, my, in the things that I've been writing and thinking. Does that mobilization hold the promise of working through these patterns, which have, you know, arrested the development of post-colonial Britain in this in this really sort of pathological way for, well, I guess for the whole of my lifetime, to be blunt. <laughs> I mean, it holds the possibility, mm. but not the promise. And I think we're in a protracted now... Now it seems the fires have stopped burning, mm. but there is still engagement. A lot's in play. Mm. There's an awful lot that people, I mean, they're always in play, but people can barely hear it in certain moments as to kind of what we do with this and the degree to which there's been a lot of symbolism and the degree to which any of that can be translated into substance. And I go back to the mortgage idea, because until people are prepared to actually scrutinise, as opposed to either throw up a stone wall and say, there's nothing to see here, Mm. or to say, everybody's awful, and let me kind of share my personal, Mm. the personal ways in which I have wronged you. Mm. And the degree to which there are so many bland alleys that one can move down, and so much opportunity for co-option. My hope resides in the fact that significant space has been cleared. Mm. And my fear resides in the fact that I think over the past 
10 years in a range of ways from Occupy Wall Street to this moment. We've proved ourselves capable, the broad, mushy, progressive world, cosmopolitan world to which I like to think I belong. We've proved ourselves capable of clearing space and really bad at holding it. Mm -hmm. And the fact of clearing it is no small factor. Mm. But when you don't hold it, actually, it kind of leaves a significant amount of room for hucksters and opportunists and... You know, there's a lot of money flying about now. Mm. A lot of, you know, where can I give my million pounds, two million pounds, you know, for those who, for the individuals who have it, to kind of black people doing, you know, but how can I buy my way into this? Mm. It worries me. It mm. really, that all of that kind of worries me. Stormzy and his 10 million doesn't worry me. No, history. I wouldn't give it to Oxford and Cambridge, though. <laughs> You'd find some other outlets for its institutional life as far as education is concerned. But let's yeah, but it at least has a history of engagement. Yeah. There's all these people with no history of engagement making statements. Mm. And so that can make people reasonably, but not particularly productively cynical. Yeah. And kind of that's my worry. In that space... Yeah. Huxley's opportunist cynics can operate. But I mean, what's what's the balance of forces? I mean, when I hear you say that, I think to myself, actually, that's an indictment of the left, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know English and US political conversation means different things by evoking the liberal. And I know that there's a conversation to be had about liberal settings and defaults and ignorance and the things that you prevent yourself from knowing because they damage your sense of yourself in the world as an actor. So I hear what you're saying is an indictment of the left as much as anything else and the failure really of the left to think that anti-racism is anything other than sort of, you know, bit of sprinkles on the top of some sort of cake you've already know the recipe for. So I, I think what's the balance of forces then? I mean, I suppose it's in our hands at the moment whether there are new kind of actors involved in this conversation. Mm. For example, look, at, I haven't been out in the demonstration, but from what my spies tell me, there are a lot of very young people there. There are a lot of mm. 16, 17, 18-year-olds there. The people for whom their political horizons have been absolutely closed down by the financial crisis and mm. people for whom a kind of existential anxiety about the future of life you know has been introduced before life's begun in effect you know and both of us I mean because I'm a little bit older than you my life was shaped really by the Cuban missile crisis and my sense as a child that the world was about to come to an end and all my sort of neurotic investment in the possibility of making a better future derives from that moment where I sat over my porridge wondering whether I'd be able to live to the end of the day from my school day so I'm really wondering about the balance of forces and about what kind of, maybe those young people whose existential concerns have also been stoked by Extinction Rebellion and the sense that what's happening to us now is in some respects a kind of rehearsal for the processes of emergency that are going to become much more routine as the climate crisis reaches more directly into our lives. I'm thinking, well, I'm hoping that there are new actors here and that they will change that conversation. And I feel encouraged I mean, I know we'll talk about technology and internet and what's present, mm. all of that, you know, and there's a very good critique of timeline media and what's exciting and what's thrilling and what's energizing and affecting you by watching a video of someone dying, you know, and circulating mm. such a video. 
But there's a good side to the forms of political communication that have been opened up by those technologies as well. And, you know, without being naive at all about how they've been set to work, I do still hope that there's something that can be salvaged from all of that, that will turn this mobilisation into a movement and make some new actors possible to make people begin to see common concerns and common interests and and common goals in, in ways that they perhaps have just haven't been able to. And maybe the, the period of enforced withdrawal, the change in tempo, does encourage you to read or to want different information. Or That seems to be this amazing sort of you know, moment of wanting to share stuff and circulate stuff and, and think about the relationship between the past and the present in a world which doesn't normally accommodate that kind of temporal span. It's usually just reacting to what's in front of you. Well, oh, oh okay. You know, we're not just going to live with reference to a future, which is going to be different, but we're also going to open our our own understanding of ourselves in the world to a, a history that we haven't really been able to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how generations work in all of this, because mm. you're not that much older than me. I'm 51. And yet, I think my upbringing was defined by the minor strike. Yeah. Now, to some extent, we may choose these definitions and to yeah. some extent, they, they choose us. But it was the beginning of a period of unrelenting defeat mm. for the left and retreat for people of colour. And I feel that now there's a generation, that, well, there are kind of few political generations. One, There's one coming up that, that will probably be, this will be the defining moment in their political consciousness. Yeah. For another one, it was the last financial crisis, which we're barely out of. Yeah, I mean, the wage stagnation, wages only returned to the level that they were in 2008, something like two months before mm. the crisis. That was the kind of you know, school of student fees and of, you know, that was already a kind of significant amount of time that was lost. That's what struck me when I interviewed Stormzy. And, you know, one of his first memories was 9-11. It was his first political memories. And he would have been in primary school. So by kind of 15, there's the economic crisis, there's the riots, there's Arab Spring, there's a kind of, you know, there's a way to... And we were just emerging out of that and now there's this and that this which one could see as an extended kind of decade although I think you'd experience it differently if you're 15 or if you're 25 and the degree to which you know there's been this exhausting thing of the left this desire to put things in silos to deny any intersectionality to reduce so that one can ridicule all notion of identity in politics mm -hmm. And to call it identity politics as, and therefore to relegate it to nothing as though your experience has no relationship to your politics. Because I do feel that kind of um, social media and new technologies in general, they caffeinate these moments. They kind of, they provide you with images. They create their own kind of instant diasporas of, you know, have you seen this? Mm. You should see, oh my God, did you... And the thing is that they can move fast and far. And then the question is whether they can settle. Yeah. And that's one of the open questions now is, can this settle around something sustained and substantial? And I hope it can, mm. for all our sakes. Mm. But I don't know. I don't know that it can. But then we, we look at the government, and this is you know the most diverse cabinet we've ever yeah. seen, sort of endless legion of posh Tories 
of course, there are one or two people who, you know, weren't born to money or whatever. But, you know, for every Adam Afrie, there's a four or five Kwesi Kwartengs and Rishi Sune. And that's before we get to the certainly Bravermans and the Badenoch. Now, why do you think when we look across the House of Commons, artfully spaced out for us in the new drama of power, with, you know, Mr. Toad on one side and the forensic sort of barrister on the other, <laughs> what accounts for that discrepancy? And how do we talk? How do we begin to talk about it? I mean, you talk about hucksters. I mean, far be it from me to cast that particular aspersion. I'm thinking about class, really. I'm thinking about what kind of theory of class intersectionally uh, reconfigured, of course, to take other dimensions of power and inequality into account. But how do we begin to talk about class again in a way that can speak to the complexity of that? Because it seems to me that the McKinsey multiculturalism that's ranged up on the conservative side of the house doesn't have a kind of organic equivalent on the Labour side. No, it doesn't. And we have always needed to talk about class in a more porous, less deterministic and more kind of qualitative as well as quantitative kind of way. And there has been a proven inability on the left or unwillingness on parts of the left to do that. What's intriguing about the kind of multiracialism of the right, because they're not really multicultural, they kind of more or less all come from the same culture, don't they? they're sort of monocultural but multi-ethnic, is that it doesn't speak to anything beyond itself. It doesn't even aspire to. I mean, it may be that on occasion they do, and I've missed it, but the buttons they've been pressing, the whistles that they have been blowing, do not sit well with the array of faces that they are pitching. And what I hope, my fear not least because a significant section of the most prominent people in this are of South Asian descent. My fear in this moment is a kind of awful ethnic bun fight in which Priti Patel is set against George Floyd and his kind of global and the global dead who have kind of come from there and that that we move in that direction. My hope, and in this I just feel like Our electoral politics aren't equipped, and I think we've seen that over the last five years, that our electoral politics are not equipped for this conversation. I'm not looking to Keir Starmer or Labour in its present form to actually really be able to engage this, that they will do what they have to do. I'm not even sure, much as I was glad that he was leader, that I would have looked to Labour, I'm not sure that that party is fit for this purpose. Historically, it certainly, it never has been. But one of the things I I really think is intriguing about the kind of landscape and why there is so much in play is because the Tories in December, which seems a long time ago, they won a decisive electoral victory. But it wasn't an ideological victory, in my view. It wasn't, they just kept saying Brexit a lot and whatever Labour said took longer and Labour were demonised and they had their own problems. And personally, I think you can't do that every two years. You know, just come out with a kind of massive plan for reconstruction and expect that people will be sufficiently politically educated to kind of get it. But that it wasn't an ideological victory, I believe which is different from saying that it's, I don't think Labour won an ideological victory either, but the Tories didn't. And the jury's out on the degree to which it's a political victory. 
the degree to which actually kind of they are capable of turning that into politics, that's very much in play. They they nearly collapsed over Dominic Cummings. They retreated on the nurses' surcharge. I mean, they don't have to retreat on anything. They have a massive majority. But clearly, while that electoral support was broad, it's not particularly deep. And so there are real pressure points here. They are numerous, but they're not strong. Mm. You know, they could rot from the inside, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I think, obviously, the personality of Mr. Toad at the centre of everything is a kind of issue for them because looking at his recent performances post-hospitalisation performances at the dispatch box, I'm not sure that, you know, the charisma is quite what it was a little while ago. But we know from looking at the success of populist political projects elsewhere in the world, you know, that pivot round central charismatic personalities to different degrees in different political climates or polities, that the magic of racism and xenophobia and nationalism, the sort of racist xenology of recovering lost greatness and all of that kind of thing, that this is, in a way, my anxiety is that you don't have to have an ideological victory. If you can iterate that sufficiently with your psychographic tools and you know, mm. gaming of Facebook and YouTube algorithms and whatever else was, is part of securing that outcome. And actually our juridical order and our democratic institutions and our policing and criminal justice institutions aren't equipped to manage that process either. It goes back to the point you were making earlier on. Maybe ideology is not what it was, you know, it's like, <laughs> like whiteness. Nobody knows what the value of it is any, anymore. You know, it's it's falling stock. It's going it's going down in this market, but but we don't know quite where it's going to settle and what the value of of ideology matters. Because actually, what you think and how coherently you put it together is utterly second now to how it makes you feel, and that that's all that matters, really. Yeah, and that is deeply worrying, and also offers an opportunity, doesn't it, to kind of make people feel differently. Yeah, and that potential is there in in Britain certainly yeah. and i think in in the in a different way we've seen it in the us the kind of a desire to be more cosmopolitan more accepting in the, there are these moments when alan kurdi died you know around sometimes around the brexit debate not always where these constituencies emerge of people and you didn't realize there were as many of them as there were who really do, and we'll ruin one at the moment, who were like, no, that's no, that's not that's not who I am. That's not the story I want to tell myself about where we're going. It was why why the symbolism, you know, to talk about the substance of Obama all day long and what he didn't deliver and what he didn't even promise that people just thought he embodied and all of that. Mm. But there was this urgent desire that you saw after eight years of George Bush for an America that was cosmopolitan, at peace with the world, that was kind of um, breaking out of its pathologies into, you know, some new different... There are constituencies there for that story which isn't an ideological story in a way. It's a narrative, It's a you know, but it, it speaks to a set of possibilities that have ideologies in it, in them. And I've been intrigued by these polls showing this, this kind of significant increase in support for Black Lives Matter in America, yeah. which just suggests that people, not enough people, 
but lots more than they were I'd sort of done with this. They don't want it anymore. They don't want to feel a set. They don't want to feel complicit in it. They don't want to feel bound by it anymore, that they would feel freer and better if this were not the case. And how one harnesses that, mm. how one moves towards that with the kind of critical and robust generosity, I think is one of the challenges of the left in this moment, that when people say, you know what, I didn't get it before, right. but I'm beginning to get it now, mm. the degree to which the left say, well, sod off until you completely get it, and why didn't you get it? And the degree to which they can say, okay, well, you know, and let's engage. And just finally, just because I was just reading this yesterday, I'm reading uh, Stuart Hall's memoir, and he talks about the degree to which in the late 40s, early 50s, you know, independence was, the notion of independence seemed inevitable, everybody was talking about it, this and that and the other. And then you read Eric Hobsbawm in um, Age of Extremes and him saying, this whole anti-colonial thing was a complete surprise to us. We went to, he was at communist camp, you know, as a teenager in the kind of late 40s and early 50s. And they didn't see it coming mm. at all. And so you see the degree to which there have been these different, even among so-called like-minded, somewhat fraternal people, there have been these very, very different conversations, these very, very different trajectories. And that's still true. No, that's true. I had a similar experience. One of the rare uh, opportunities I had to um, converse with CLR James, interviewing him and, and making some sort of offhand remark about how, you know, intractable things were. And he said, look, when I was your age, you know, that you look at the map of Africa and every country was dominated by a colonial power. And mm. look at it now, you know, the South Africans are clinging on by their fingernails. So absolutely. Yes, that's right. Why are we so bad at clairvoyance? You know, what is it about that challenge, you know? But I, I think it's a related question and it speaks to the poles of, of what you just said a moment ago, which started with Elan Kurdi and went to Obama. And I think with Obama, absolutely with you in the sense of the feelings, the effect, the affect that he creates, the, the performance of authority, the relationship to kind of reliable forms of, or apparent relationship to reliable forms of interpreting the world and understanding and being guided by, guided by the science or, or whatever it is in a simpler, in a simpler information ecology. But for me, the Alan Kurdi case, which I'm also really, really interested in, I've been writing about because of this book I'm writing about the sea, you know, I remember going to a conference, actually, just after this had happened, a conference in um, Bologna. And I was talking to a lot of Italian academics who were working on the Mediterranean crisis. And it was the first time I'd really tried to speak about it in public and to raise more sort of philosophical problems that I thought were pending in that story. And one of the people who spoke before me in that day talked about Elan Kurdi and used the image of his dead body on the beach and left it up. You know, everyone goes off to get their coffee. And this this image of horror, this absolute image of horror, is still sort of there in the room. And I said to what what are you doing? Why is this here? What what do you is it so drained of all meaning for you that you think it's an, a suitable backdrop for us to all go off and get our coffee and our uh, have a ciggy? You know, this is not right, you know. And I think it's almost as though there's a certain set of left, and, and sometimes I think there's a feminist version of this, which says that you have to be suspicious of sympathy. Mm. That actually, these are the most unsophisticated political responses you can have, that really they're all things you should be aware of in yourself, the desire to, I mean, a similar 
similar criticisms people make of what they call white savior narratives and so mm. on. You know, I mean, uh, what would be a good example of this? It's like Mrs. Thatcher in, in the, um, the Good Samaritan in the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where she ignores the fact that the in her rewriting of that parable, the Good Samaritan is actually a foreigner, you know, and part of the force of the parable. Um, I'm sorry if anyone's listened to this who isn't a Christian is unfamiliar with it. You have to go and look that up in Wikipedia. Point is that the Good Samaritan is able to be generous and sympathetic and caring, caring because he's a foreigner and he can see certain things. And this is also part of the parable is that people don't expect the foreigner to be like that, right? Mm. But in Mrs. Thatcher's rendering of that parable, the reason he's able to be generous and decent is because he's rich, right? (laughs) She thinks it's a parable about wealth, or at least she presents it as though it were a parable about wealth. But it's curious to me, I haven't read the book on empathy that was written by Cameron's Dominic Cummings. I can't remember his name now, the guy that went off to work for Google. But empathy, I mean, empathy's sort of all right, because that's, you know, that's a, it's a kind of buzz where we want to promote empathy. But, but sympathy is terribly, terribly, terribly problematic, because that raises the idea that by feeling with somebody, you're feeling for them. And I don't really buy that distinction. I think empathy, if you look it up in the dictionary, is a newer word than sympathy, obviously. And empathy carries with it the suggestion that you feel everything that person feels. But Mm. sympathy doesn't carry that suggestion. Sympathy Mm. carries the idea, it's like a sympathetic string on an instrument or something, that there's a little bit of what's going on that you get, you know. Mm. So I think from a sort of more theoretical point of view, I'd want to argue for a lot more attention to be paid to sympathy, a lot less distrust deployed in the direction of this sense of a politics of emotion and that all the stuff about neurology and affect really doesn't deal with the kind of human scale in which things are engaged and the or the political scale in which these things come into play. Yeah, and that brings, that brings us actually back to the balance of forces in a sense, that you have, because there is potential in sympathy. Now, there's potentially... You can infantilize people. You could. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which you could uh, patronize and paternalize, but there's also the potential for solidarity, mm. and that when one dismisses sympathy out of hand, you forget that reigned against us are a group of people, uh, an ideology or or a kind of sentiment that these aren't people at all. Yes, that this is not happening to people, and therefore we should. I mean, I. I I since that when I did my book Another Day in the Death of America about all the kids who were shot dead in one day in the States and seven of them are black, two are Latino, one are white, which is not statistically, it's a random day, not an average day. But that people would talk about the kids as though they didn't love life and the parents as though they didn't love their kids. Mm. And so this, one of the reasons it could go on in the way that it, ha- it has because people thinking, well, it's happening to people over there. And they, it's not just they're not like us. They're not really people. Yes. It's not just that. Yes. And so when you have that in all its, whether it's Bolsonaro or, or Trump or, you know, a kind of um, a form of the UKIP stuff or the kind of let them drown in the Mediterranean, mm. actually... <laughs> The presence of sympathy is a quite an important starting point. Yeah. Well, that recognition, I mean, of course, that goes back to the beginning of, of um, anti-slavery activity, isn't it? It's, am, am I not, you know, a man and a brother? Am I not a woman and a sister at the bottom of that righteous sugar bowl? And the history of black writers and people coming out of slave 
experience, fugitives, escapees, free people, making exactly that argument, looking exactly at that thing over, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts in a very ambivalent and sometimes uncomfortable relationship with other forces of radicalism, particularly the left, actually, because I think those questions around who's worthy of recognition and who can be identified as endowed with the I in thou or whatever, these things are in a way older than the left. The left comes into that conversation at a certain angle, at a certain point historically. So yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do in the book I'm writing at the moment is to tell that story over a much longer arc than I've attempted it before. On my list of things, Gary, there's, we're running out of time. And there's just one more thing I want to say to you and ask you about, really, because I think of you in your writing. One of the reasons I enjoy your writing so much is that you use humour very, very deftly. And I'm wondering, given that it's not just the horrors of this moment that circulate in internet culture and timeline media, it's also the gifts and the um, the memes and uh, there, there seems to be an Cold War Steve, who of course I absolutely worship. You know, as I I think has become he's like the Hogarth at this time. I, I know doing three or four or five or six of those images per day because he's the tempo at which he works is very very high. But I'm sort of wondering what a sort of post satirical comic response to this pathology and horror that we inhabit looks like because you know you've seemed to me to have been able to use humor very productively in amplifying extending the kind of crit- critical uh, angles that you want to adopt on this process and I, I wish there was more of that but I think people often hesitate before they think they can start to to use humor to use comedy really as yeah. a way of taking this edifice to pieces or showing its limitations well I mean humor's it's an interesting instrument isn't it because it often rests on the absurdity and kind of often plays on the obscenity and demands a certain amount of lucid courage in order to work. And I'm going to assume for now, for reasons that are a bit of a shame, really, but speak to that kind of lack of generosity, that there will be a certain kind of black humour, by which I mean black people humour, which probably will flourish in this moment, and that there will be a certain amount of reticence among white humorists mm. about what they can and can't laugh about. Although I've seen some quite good skits online. And I guess I think it's always worth thinking at least twice in these moments, particularly if you're not, if you are from the quote unquote privileged group. It's probably death to think three times. Do you know what I mean? It's probably the end of you to kind of to overthink it. But the scope for some of the things that are happening almost defy this morning tara my wife was talking about los angeles school police department no it was last night she was telling me los angeles school police department this is the police department the section of the police department that only deals with schools was asked by the la authorities okay you're going to need to kind of weapon down and they handed over the grenade launcher the schools department of LA had a grenade launcher, but they weren't going to give up. And it was kind of mine detectors. And there were a bunch of other things. And you were like, oh, my God, you're the people who are policing our kids. I mean, there's so much scope there. It's almost unnecessary. But the level of absurdity and obscenity that we've reached, mm-hmm. because these things have gone unchallenged, with impunity for so long, 
that the people policing our kids have a rocket, have a grenade launcher that they're prepared to kind of uh, hand over. So I think that there is, there's plenty of scope and there's plenty of power in it too, because there's plenty of power in revealing that absurdity in a way that doesn't necessarily, which you may not have even questioned before, without feeling overly, cripplingly, judged and complicit in your kind of in your own life yeah and of course that absurdity rests on the the founding absurdity of of racial hierarchy of racial differentiation but then i guess that's another story for another day so gary thank you very 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 much for that Um, and uh let's keep the conversation going you know Uh, hopefully under more convivial circumstances than the lockdown if that's the right word for it has allowed us Thank you you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.